Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We, um, we have to keep quite uh, tightly to time and finish at uh, 6.30, um, so we'll start now. Um, I'm Howard Davis, Director of the LSE, and very pleased to be hosting this launch of the International Growth Centre, which is a major initiative on the part of uh, DFID. Um, and of course, though it's in our self-interest to say so, we might say it's a highly enlightened initiative by uh, Secretary of State and his colleagues uh, to undertake what is, in a sense, you might say, a very large-scale outsourcing of policy advice, research and thinking um, on behalf of the department, which we hope will deliver extremely useful and practical advice to a range of developing countries. But you are going to hear firsthand about this from the people who are actually going to be managing uh, this project, so I'm not going to prejudge or pre-cook what they say. One of the most irritating things, I think, when you are speaking at a conference is to find that the person introducing you has actually summarised your remarks uh, in a minute. So I'm really not going to do that. Um, I will uh, introduce the other members of the panel, and I hope we will have time for you to put some questions to them about what we're going to do. Uh, I welcome all the panel. Uh, I welcome uh, Roger Goodman from Oxford, who is uh, representing our partner, because this is a partnership between the LSE and Oxford, um, which we're very pleased about. Um, but before we hear from the people who are going to be running the centre, from Gobind Nankani and Robin Burgess, and then from, uh, and from Paul Collier uh, at the end, and we'll also hear from the Rwandan ambassador, Clava Gateti, who will uh, speak uh, about what he sees as the value of these initiatives for developing countries. Before all that, we're going to hear first from the Secretary of State, Douglas Alexander, uh, who uh, is, of course, at uh, DFID, has been in Parliament uh, for 11 years, is very much seen as one of the rising stars of the Labour firmament, um, and that's probably enough praise, I think, is it? Probably actually <laughs> It's amazing what £32 million worth of research money buys you by way of a kind introduction. Um, thank you, Howard, genuinely for uh, your invitation to address this gathering this evening. And I can frankly think of no better setting in which to discuss the start of the Growth Centre than this new fantastic building uh, here at the London School of Economics, which I think it's arguable better embodies than any other institution in British public life the nexus, the interface between public policy and quality academic research. And that very much is the spirit uh, in which we launch this new centre this evening. It's a great pleasure for me as Secretary of State to be here to launch this International Growth Centre. But it's only fair by way of acknowledgement at the beginning of my remarks to say there has been something, indeed something of a huge shift in the international economic climate since I first announced last March our intentions to establish such a centre. Yet I want to suggest this evening that the consequences, the ramifications of this year's global financial crisis make the case for the International Growth Centre 
even stronger and more relevant to the current needs of developing countries today than was even the case a few months ago. Those countries will be able, through this centre, to draw on some of the world's leading economists. And in my remarks today, I want to set out how the International Growth Centre will help countries to navigate what is unquestionably an uncertain future. But first, let me set out some context. The last decade has been something of a golden age for international development, thanks to a combination of political leadership and sustained economic growth in a number of countries. As global trade has grown in the last decade, so too has the developing world's share of that global trade. Last year, foreign direct investment in developing countries grew by 16%. The collective GDP of developing countries has grown by more than 5% a year for the last five years. This economic growth, together with commitments from donors to cancel debts and to increase aid, has underpinned a far better quality of life for literally millions of our global neighbours. 40 million more primary-aged children are in school today than at the turn of the century. Thanks to increasing vaccinations, the number of people who die from measles each year, to take one example, has fallen from more than three-quarters of a million to less than one-quarter of a million. Much of this programme cannot be undone. A boy who has been vaccinated against measles will remain protected in the years ahead. A girl who has learned to read will carry that knowledge happily throughout her life. Yet some of the progress, we have to be honest, can be undone. The two million Africans now on regular medication for HIV need that treatment to continue for many years into the future. And there remains the progress that has not yet been made. How will the economic downturn affect our collective efforts to prevent half a million women dying in pregnancy or in childbirth each year? Or to get clean water to a billion people who this evening do not currently have access to it? So in my remarks this evening, I'll give an overview of the risks that the current economic downturn poses to developing countries and seek to address the political imperatives for action. I'll seek to describe the unique contribution that I believe this International Growth Centre can provide in these uncertain times. Let me take each of these in turn and turn first to the financial crisis. For, as with natural disasters, it seems that the poorest people in the world are the most vulnerable to this man-made crisis. The attention of recent months has understandably focused on the developed countries most closely linked to the core of the international banking system. In recent weeks, that focus has widened to include some of the larger emerging economies. These are the countries that have been most immediately affected by what Alan Greenspan has called a once-in-a-century credit tsunami. Financial sectors in low-income countries are, however, less integrated into the global financial markets and therefore have been less directly affected by the first wave of this so-called tsunami. Yet developing countries might well be more vulnerable to a second wave of such a credit crisis. At the moment, it is very hard to predict with precision what the impact of the financial crisis might be for each developing country, but it is likely to curtail finance for both individuals and indeed for nations. Money available to families through work and remittances will start to reduce. As many as 17 African countries rely on a single non-oil commodity for 40% or more of their GDP, Demand for those commodities have already started to fall, 
so miners in Zambia and Mozambique are likely to lose their jobs as a consequence. Remittances provide a lifeline for many families across the developing world. But as the financial crisis bites in the West, people are finding it harder to send money back home to relatives. Caribbean and Central American countries are already seeing a decline in remittances because of job losses that we've witnessed in the United States. In such circumstances, it is vital that donors play an active role in helping the poorest communities to get cheap access to banking services and to help bring down the cost of getting those remittances back home. Our successful website, sendmoneyhome.org, already helps people to find the cheapest ways to send money back to their relatives. But we, mu we must now do more. More than 90% of people who send money home have mobile phones, and more than 80% of those receiving money have mobile phones as well. We are therefore now working on proposals to give more people a safe and reliable way to send money home through their mobile phone, which could have, we believe, the cost of sending remittances internationally. Yet it is not just individual families that will be affected by these changes. Money available to governments will fall too as investors start to flee from developing countries now classed as high-risk investments. Ghana and Kenya have postponed planned government bond issues worth some $800 million, recognising that the appetite to invest no longer exists at the present time in these markets. And even the aid money provided by donors is vulnerable to currencies falling against the dollar. Mozambique has effectively lost a fifth of its budget support in local currency terms just since the middle of this year alone. As developing country governments have less money available to them, they will be less able to invest in infrastructure, in education and in healthcare, the services that their citizens so desperately need at these times of uncertainty. But let me give you a sense of the scale of the challenge that together we face. The World Bank has estimated that the combined effect of these pressures could result in a 2% reduction in developing countries' growth rates below that which we were expecting for the coming year. If that prediction were to come true, then we can expect to see as many as 80 million more people forced to live lives in extreme poverty as a result of the present financial crisis. As the President of the World Bank, Bob Zellick, has put it so eloquently, this is not only a financial crisis, it's a human crisis as well. So as the economic climate threatens to force people into poverty, we need even stronger political leadership than we have seen in the last decade to ensure that the progress we have made is not now reversed. We need a coordinated global response to this crisis to ensure that in the next few years we do not see them as simply lost years in the global fight against poverty. The meeting of the G20 that took place last month in Washington was of course historic in bringing together leaders of developed economies with the leaders of the rising economic powers to determine the global response to the financial crisis. But the poorest countries need a voice too. And that is why as host to the next G20 summit, due to take place here in the United Kingdom in April, we are already in discussions as to how best to achieve this aim of inclusion. The Prime Minister is clear that we must engage with Africa in preparing the London summit, and I gave this message to a meeting of African finance ministers just last week. But as well as a more inclusive global system, we also need a more flexible system that can tackle the interconnected challenges that face the world today of growth, trade, energy and climate change. 
and I would suggest a four-point agenda for action for the international community. Firstly, the G20 London Summit needs to deliver reforms to financial regulation and supervision in order to continue the stabilisation of the financial system and to restore global growth. The summit must also agree on steps to reform the IMF and the World Bank so that they are more representative and more effective in the struggle against global poverty in the years ahead. Secondly, we must focus on finishing the global trade deal. A successful Doha deal is vital to deliver not only more market access for the world's poorest, but also a much-needed boost to the global economy at this time of uncertainty. There is a window of opportunity, indeed a window of necessity now, to secure agreement on agriculture and industrial goods before the end of this year. That, in turn, could pave the way to completing a deal next year. But it is urgent that we act now, and I and my colleagues in government are urging all countries to show real flexibility over the coming days and to support Pascal Lamy in his efforts to secure ministerial agreement on these terms. Thirdly, we must ensure that the current financial crisis does not distract from the need to deal with the damaging effects of climate change. Indeed, building a low-carbon economy holds the prospect of growth, employment and prosperity for both the developing and the developed world, which is why the work being taken forward in Poznan this week is both so timely and so urgent. Fourthly, we need donor countries to keep the commitments that they have made on aid. Last week, I attended a meeting of donor and developing countries in Doha in the Gulf, and I was encouraged by the number of countries that did reaffirm their pledges to deliver 0.7% of their income as aid, the same target that the United Kingdom has committed to meet by 2013. And donors need to ensure that this support provides the greatest possible benefit to the poorest people. We know that economic growth is the engine for reducing poverty, that as a job it is the best way out of poverty for individuals, growth is the best way out of poverty for nations. That's in essence why we are all gathered here in this lecture theatre this evening to launch the International Growth Centre. The economic downturn will of course affect developing countries in different ways, but we know that it will unquestionably affect each and every one of them. Now in a different time and a different era, indeed in response to the Great Depression of the 1930s, President Franklin Roosevelt turned to what he called a brains trust, a group of Columbia professors who played a key role in shaping the policies that were to become the New Deal. I want the International Growth Centre to make available now some of the world's finest economists to governments of developing countries to help them to find practical ways to stimulate growth as the New Deal did in America in the 1930s. The International Growth Centre will certainly boast the involvement of some of the biggest names in economics from right around the world. From Oxford, we've got Paul Collier. From the London School of Economics, we've got Nick Sturm and Tim Besley, also a member of the UK's Monetary Policy Committee. From Stanford in the United States, we have the Nobel laureate, Mike Spence. And from Harvard, we have the former economic counsellor of the IMF, Ken Rogoff. These people and others will make the International Growth Centre, I believe, a uniquely powerful tool for developing countries to use in identifying their own distinctive paths to economic growth. Different countries, of course, will have different needs, but the Growth Centre will give them a hotline to the advice of genuinely world-class experts. Now, given the current economic pressures, 
The Growth Centre will be well placed to advise countries on how to best sustain recent levels of growth that have been achieved across the developing world. The academics in the centre could examine the importance of a particular sector. In sub-Saharan Africa, that could be agriculture, to the national economy and set out how, how it might be commercialised and developed to provide the greatest employment prospects for nations or for regions. The Growth Centre will also be able to support governments to inform their national economic plans. This kind of in-depth work could require a team to look at past performance, identify constraints to growth and look at competitive advantages. The Growth Centre can provide this kind of analysis with teams established to work in a client country over several years. The Centre will also be able to advise countries on how to shape their growth plans for a low-carbon future. This could involve helping a developing country to meet their future energy needs by identifying low-carbon options, whether that might mean hydro, wind or biomass power production. The Growth Centre will help countries to put in place the hard analysis needed in order to make what are often difficult choices for public policymakers. But the right choices in tough times can help build a genuine foundation for future economic growth. I know from my own conversations with ministers across the developing world that a number of countries are already excited genuinely about this centre and keen to make use of the expertise that it will bring together. So I believe it's right at this time of economic uncertainty to provide this expertise for policymakers in developing countries. For while global attention has rightly focused in recent months on the financial rescue package, we cannot and we should not forget the human rescue package we pledged together eight years ago to deliver when world leaders agreed the Millennium Development Goals. We must, we have a moral obligation to do what we can to limit the human toll of the present economic downturn. And we must do what we can to ensure that our efforts to reform our international architecture, to increase trade and to tackle climate change, also support the efforts of the bottom billion left behind by years of economic growth as we look ahead to this new economic era. I believe that there is a huge potential prize for this growth centre to make a timely and important contribution at a critical moment for the global economy. So it is a genuine pleasure for me to launch it this evening. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Douglas, and particularly for setting the agenda of the centre in the context of the particular difficult economic circumstances that we found, which I think was uh, especially interesting. I'm now going to hand straight over to Robin Burgess, uh, who, of course, is a professor of economics here and will be co-director of the centre. Uh, we continue with our Scottish theme because he was educated in Edinburgh and indeed has a daughter called Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> Takes all sorts of well, thank you very much and uh, welcome to everybody. Um, what I thought I would do um, with the time allocated to me is uh, jointly with Paul and Gobin give a little bit more sense to everybody in the, in the room tonight uh, about what we're up to and how we're different uh, from, from some past attempts at providing assistance to uh, low-income countries. And so to do that, I'm going to sort of begin where we sort of began, which was sort of thinking about, uh, I mean, growth has been coming up the development agenda for a while, partly for reasons to do with the fact that it is recognized as being central to poverty reduction. 
So I think it was about February last year we began thinking about a growth center and what form it might take. And we began as academics, as you always do, thinking about the ideas generation side of things. So, you know, who are going to be the, the, the key researchers in the, the, the areas that are really important for generating uh, growth in these, these very poorest countries around the world? And that involved, you know, a huge amount of conversations with people all over the world. And at the present time, we have about 70 researchers from LSE Oxford and all over the globe working in sort of 10 key areas, which very much sort of map to uh, some of the comments already made by the uh, Secretary of State. So we have a, a program, a thematic group on macro, one on trade, one on infrastructure and urbanization, one on state capabilities, which includes public administration, public finance, one on firm capabilities, which has big focus on entrepreneurship and the private sector, one on governance, accountability, and political economy, one on finance, one on human capital, health, education, nutrition, one on agriculture, and finally, uh, one on environment and climate change. So what we try to do there is to try to pull together the best researchers in the world under those different thematic areas, which has been a huge job. Then, from that sort of basis, we began to think, well, how can this resource, and you know, what is the gel that binds all these people together? They want to work on dealing with the sort of low growth problems in the world. So what are the big problems in the poorest countries in the world? That's sort of the gel that, that binds the researchers together. We then had to think, well, how are we actually going to use this resource in countries? And I, I think Gobind and, and Paul are going to provide greater detail about what's distinctive there. But very broadly, what we, we, we decided upon is that we don't know what the priorities are in the countries. We don't know, sitting in LSC or uh, elsewhere in the world, what are the priorities. So there would have to be an initial and fairly extensive consultation, which would continue over time, which would involve not just the government. That was a key decision. So it was not just about the government. It was also about the private sector. And what, are the, what does the private sector think of the key constraints for firms to enter, to expand, and so forth? And, 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 and just as importantly, civil society. So what are the, what are the uh, most innovative NGOs, the most innovative civil society organizations doing in these countries to, say, provide better health and education to, the, to these populations? So that was one sort of key decision, that we were, we were going to be sort of demand-led. We were going to allow the countries to decide what were the key things that they wanted to do, or what, are they view, what did they view as the key constraints. Of course, within that set, we, can't, we couldn't do research on everything. But I think it's, we're still at the stage that we really feel that that is the right model. The second thing we decided was that there had to be a sense of ownership of this ideas-creating machine. And so following these sort of initial consultation visits, what we have is a, is, a, is, a, is a structure, which I won't elaborate on, of bringing in the key sort of players, the key policy stakeholders in these countries to be involved in the work of the International Growth Center, which will have a physical presence in these countries. Okay? And again, going back to what I was saying about the different stakeholders, we, we would consult and bring in civil society, consult and bring in the private sector, and consult and bring in the, the government. To work on growth, one has to have a buy-in at a very high level in the government. So we, re we recognize that we're going to have to be invited by presidents, finance ministers, and the like. But beyond that, we want to consult the sort of full set of actors in the society as to what they view as the constraints. The third thing, so this was to basically inculcate ownership of the ideas that come out of the IGC. And the, th the third and final thing is we said we can't just go in for short periods. Once we go in, we have to stay there. 
So the ideal is you go into Tanzania in 2009 and you stay in Tanzania for 10 years. That would mean that you won't be working on the same issues in 2009 as you're working in 2010, 2011, and so forth. But the point is that because the, uh, uh, the, the issues will change, but having that physical pro presence with a, with a clear sort of country leadership and country ownership of, this, of, this, uh, uh, of the IGC, that is going to increase both the, the, the chances that the ideas will translate into policy, but also that, 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 that there will be a, a growing sense of trust that the, that the set of uh, that the work we're doing in the countries is fully owned by the countries and hence listened to. And I think what we've been finding, and we're still at a very early stage, is that that's attractive, that arrangement is attractive both from the policymaker side but also from the researcher side. Because if you think about research, researchers don't go in and spend three months and then write a paper. It takes a long time and a long process of you know, understanding who the data providers are, what are the key issues. It's a process sort of building relationships in the country. So we've been pleased that both from the policy side and from the research side, there's been wide support for this model of early consultation uh, and lengthy engagement. So I think I'm going to, given the shortness of time, having sort of sketched out some of the key ideas, uh, turn it over to our executive director, Gobind Mankani. Thank you, Gobind. Gobind is going to be the executive director of the centre. He's currently president of the Global Development Movement. But following a chance meeting between the two of us at Kigali Airport in September, um, he agreed to join this adventure. Uh, he's actually a Ghanaian national and therefore should really be back home campaigning in the elections. Uh, but, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much, Howard. I'm delighted to be joining the International Growth Center. I think you've heard a great deal about it already this evening. What I thought I might do is share with you what I think is new about the Growth Center, and I think there are five things that characterize it which are new, particularly these five things together. I think not, they're not all new, but having them all together is new. And they are essentially uh, the focus on context, specificity is one, the focus on ownership, which uh, Robin talked about, the strong links between research and policy, which uh, characterize it, the great reliance on, on networking, networks, and also finally on using disciplines other than economics. So just uh, a minute on each of them. Uh, on context specificity, Basically, the literature on growth has recently been characterized by words like mystery and elusive. But one thing that comes across clearly is the fact that context matters. Successful experiences of growth around the world have always have shown that there's a lot of variance in approaches. There are some fundamentals that are important. Macro stability is important, openness to trade, savings, and a few other things. But context matters, and countries have used very different approaches. So I think the Growth Center will be approaching its challenges with a mindset which very clearly uh, recognizes that not one size fits all. On the question of ownership and demand-driven demand uh, uh, work, which Robbins talked about, I think we all know that successful growth policies have always been those that have really been implemented with 
a sense of ownership by countries. And uh, the way we would bring this into play in our work is in recognizing the importance of, of political economy considerations for sequencing policies, the importance of neighborhood effects, the importance of implementation. And as Robin mentioned, this means that we will have a lot of consultation upstream and downstream with policymakers, with stakeholders in the country, with, uh, with journalists, with civil society organizations, with academics, and so on. The third link, the third issue is the link, strong link between research and policy. We've always made the point that policy needs to be informed or based on, on evidence. And yet, um, and yet we find that very often this is not the case. Well, what, what will happen in the International Growth Center work is we'll have these 10 thematic groups. Robin mentioned the groups. And they will be engaged in work on these countries uh, over a longer term period. And they'll be working very closely with the country policy teams that will be engaged with the countries. So this, this, uh, this sort of symbiosis between researchers and policy and the policy, maker, uh, the policy teams in the growth center will be fundamental. Uh, fourthly, we said a lot of use of networks. I mean, we believe very strongly that the growth center will have to draw on the best talent there is around the world as well as in the countries of engagement. And hence the importance of networks. If you look at uh, the various logos on, on the banner here, you see reference to, to the Global Development Network, to the Center for Economic Policy Research, to other networks like the African Economic Research Consortium. And this will all be very important. In addition, of course, we've, we have these links to the private sector. We'll have uh, former policymakers advising us on our work. Strong emphasis, therefore, on networks and, and communications. And finally, on the question of other disciplines. I mean, the role of institutions and of political economy is now very widely recognized in the literature. We have to bring into our teams expertise other than that of economists. We'll be working very much with political economy specialists, political scientists, but also other social sciences, both from within the countries as well as drawing on experts from outside the countries to help us in our work. So I think pulling these five elements together, we think that we will be able to make at least a modest contribution to helping countries develop research-based policy options for faster and sustained growth. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kevin. We will now hear from the Oxford end of this uh, venture uh, from Professor Paul Collier, who's Professor of Economics at Oxford, Director of the Centre for the Study of African Economies, and recently author of a, a very well-received book called The Bottom Billion. Thank you. Um, so what about The Bottom Billion? The, the challenge for The Bottom Billion is that we've got to replace divergence, which has been the, the history of the last 40 years, with convergence. And convergence is usually going to be much more demanding than poverty reduction. Right? You can do poverty reduction by moving from zero growth to 1% growth, poverty will fall. But convergence means they've got to grow faster than everybody else. Of course, just at the moment, that's helped by what everybody else is doing, but <laughs> we can't count on that, right? Uh, Long-term convergence means they're going to have to raise their growth rates a lot. Um, now, uh, Oxford and the LSE have already been doing that. Um, 
this partnership that we're just launching now is built on a partnership that we've already got. This was not a shotgun marriage in response to an advert put out by DFID. This was something we'd already established. Actually, already thanks to DFID, because we're already partnering in a, a big DFID project called Institutions for Growth. So, and we chose to partner for that because we knew each other, we've got complementary skills, we knew we could get on. Right? So um, what the Growth Centre represents for us is a massive scaling up of that ambition to use economic research to help the bottom billion converge. Um, it's a massive scaling up, not just in resources, but of course it moves way beyond LSE and Oxford. It's a global network, which is what's needed. Now, it's a good time to be launching a, a center on growth, for, really for the reasons the Secretary of State has already explained, that um, this terrible shock has most surely concentrated minds on economic policy. All governments now know that policy matters and that policy has to be rethought. Um, of course, the newspapers are full of debates on that policy rethinking. But the newspapers, those debates, are pertinent for the sort of shock that we've got, which is indeed virtually unprecedented shock that emanated from the financial sector. The countries of the bottom billion have got a very different set of shocks. Their problems are distinctive. Now, I have to say that the sort of slump that we fear, and hopefully won't happen, the bottom billion have typically experienced once a decade. This huge swing from growth to massive decline. Decline rate, rates of decline that we have never seen and won't see. And so they're, in one sense, used to shocks. They're used to the economics of earthquakes. Um, but the sources of those shocks are, are, are very distinctive. It's not coming from their financial sectors. Um, it's coming at the beginning of 2008. Many countries were already plunged into shock, and where that emanated from was the world food crisis. World food prices surged, and that mattered to them far more than us, because whereas the food is 10% of the budget of the, of the average developed country household, it's 50% of the average budget of the, of the typical, typical African. And so the world food crisis mattered for them much more than for us. It plunged countries like Ethiopia into a, a new range of crisis. They've got inflation of 60% at the moment, driven by uh, food price inflation. Right? In fact, the, the first country that the growth center will probably visit is sending a macroeconomic team in January to Ethiopia to try and help on that. That's, that, that's sort of the plan. That's the sort of issue we'll be trying to confront as a matter of real urgency. Um, and of course, the food crisis, um, you know, to an extent, has gone away. Um, and they've been replaced by another set of crises related to falling commodity prices that nobody anticipated. And so budgets were flush, spending was rising, and suddenly 
countries of facing uh, budgetary crisis and their exporters are, are going to be highly stressed. So it's a distinctive set of shocks where they can't get understanding of the policy choices in any detail just by following the global debate. The global debate is about our crisis, not their crisis. And so they need a distinctive set of research. And to date, there's been, to a large extent, a disconnect between the global research community in economics and what is needed, the sort of research that is needed by the governments of the bottom billion. Uh, the research has been on, directed to topics that are not usually very pertinent. Um, and in response to that, governments have sort of, in a way, learned not to listen to it. And so there's a disconnect on both sides. Researchers haven't had enough exposure to the contexts that matter. And because researchers haven't been exposed to those contexts, the governments have learned not to listen. Um, two words that I hope will characterize our approach and our research. And the first word, um, which is not the first word you normally associate with economists, will be modesty. Um, I learned the importance of that when I worked for, for Jim Wolfenson at the World Bank. And um, when I learned that when Jim, when I said something that Jim agreed with, um, he'd call me Paul. He was a friendly sort of chap. And then when I said something that he thought was cloud cuckoo land, he'd call me Professor. <laughs> and so I learned that's how the policy world sees professors of economics. It's cloud cuckoo land, right? So modesty will be part of our approach. And the other word is going to be realism. Um, one of the absurdities of the Washington Consensus was that it sketched a world that was unattainable. And relevant policy has to start from where countries are. And it has to start politically from what is within the sensible range of policy maneuver. And to know that, you have to ask. So that's the approach we'll take. I believe that in all the countries of the bottom billion, there is a demand for the sort of work that we'll be offering. And the reason for that is that in all of these countries, there are people who are serious and courageous and are struggling for change. I was very proud that I was sitting straight opposite one, Jongi Thongo, who's going to be helping to supervise and scrutinize us over the years. And we're doing our work, if we succeed, for people whose, whose lives are on the line in that struggle. Ours are not. We have the modest role of stepping up behind them and making their struggle a bit easier. So, thank you very much. Thank you. Professor. <laughs> <laughs> and now, uh, 
last and batting number six, which is a, a very good position uh, for England. It's the Flintoff position. Um, <laughs> a reference probably not hugely meaningful in Rwanda. Um, we have Ambassador Gatete Rwanda, who was Secretary General of the uh, Rwandan Ministry of uh, Finance. We have something of a connection here with Rwanda. The President Kagame was in the school last year and we took an LSE team down to Rwanda <coughs> in September to mount a conference on climate change in uh, East Africa. So we're pleased that that connection is being maintained this evening and he's going to give us uh, the view from the front line, as it were. Ambassador. Thank you very much. Um, well, um, let me just tell you, first of all, the experience from the recipient countries. As an economist, uh, it's surprising to, to stand here and talk about economic growth, uh, because as recipients, we're used to getting what you are given, and you keep quiet and you keep talking about poverty reduction. Uh, it was my president when he came here and he says, well, we need aid as a transition, but ultimately, we need trade and investment, and that's what, what is going to get us out of poverty. Uh, we never used to talk about economic growth in the corridors with all the development partners, as we used to call them in Rwanda. We could only sit with the World Bank and IMF, talk about growth with the Central Bank. And when we approached the DFID, we are surprised that actually, for them, they were not only partners, but they wanted it actually to drive it. And that one really uh, surprised us very much because it's unlike other bilateral development partners. If this continues, I think this time we'll take a shorter time to address the key issues of poverty reduction. But in my brief remarks here, I want to highlight uh, three things. The background of economic programs and poverty reduction strategies in developing countries, uh, the need for great attention to economic growth in order to sustainably reduce poverty, and also the need and relevance of specialized institutions such as this one that has been launched today uh, for, to provide advice to developing countries in order to deal with the constraints of economic growth. As you all recall, in 1980s and 1990s, most of our developing countries already had the structure adjustment programs and enhanced structure adjustment uh, programs. Ours started uh, in 1998. By the year 2002, we already started receiving the interim relief, uh, debt relief, and by 2005, we are getting the maximum uh, debt relief, so it has been very useful for us. But since the year 2000, there was growing concern of the high levels of poverty in our own countries. That's the time in our country we started also our own vision, the one we call the Vision 2020, uh, with the whole aim of really growing out of poverty and becoming a middle-income country by the year 2020. That's the target that we gave ourselves. And that's the time when, as you all know, that the Millennium Development Goals also were launched, and that's the time we started. Uh, we moved from the Enhanced Structure Adjustment Facility with the Britain Institutions this time to poverty reduction and growth facility. And of course, those who are not the only partners, but also we had the bilateral and multilateral de development agreements for support to our national programs. 
the donors also still following their traditional form of support. Some of them were supporting projects, others program support, others budget support led by the UK, trying to convince others, and this is uh, the model that we all wanted as uh, recipient countries, and each having own assistance strategy. Bilaterals, the World Bank, they had the country assistance strategy, the UNDP had the UNDAF, and the African Development Bank had the same, and so many other bilaterals also had their own st strategies. So you would agree with me that for a country like Rwanda, which already had no cap, which already had less capacity, uh, given its history of the tragedy of 1994, this was very confusing, time-consuming, and of course capacity-consuming. At that time, the talk of the day since the year 2000 was poverty reduction. That was something new that was coming up. If you don't talk poverty reduction, you can't sit with many bilaterals. It was very difficult. And all the sources that were being mobilized were being channeled to make sure they are in line to addressing all the problems uh, of poverty reduction. Of course, uh, the social sector benefited so much, and uh, of course, less went to the pro uh, productive sector. But of course, we know that economic growth was rarely talked about beyond the ministers of finance and the central banks. <coughs> but we know that you cannot sustainably reduce poverty without economic growth. Hence the importance of looking at critical areas that contribute most to economic growth, and also looking at the key constraints to growth that need to be overcome for us to be able to uh, reduce the uh, poverty in a more sustainable manner. The review of Rwanda's recent social economic performance together with the lessons that we had from the initial poverty reduction strategy paper in the year 2006 suggested that we can increase economic growth by investing in infrastructure, promoting skills development and the service sector, mainstreaming private sector development, modernizing agriculture, and promoting environment and land use management. Furthermore, we had an octad uh, growth diagnostic and investment analysis in the year 2006 that almost came out with the same findings and conclusions and proposed five sets of policy interventions for growth. These include developing skills and capacity for productive employment, improving the infrastructure, especially energy, transport, and communication in the case of Rwanda, <coughs> promoting science, technology, and innovation, deepening financial sector, and improving governance to address challenges associated with micro-risks. In Rwanda, we have taken into account the above economic review lessons from the poverty reduction strategy, the PRSP1, and the, these analysis uh, from UNCTAD to develop our own second generation of the poverty reduction strategy, the one we call economic development and poverty reduction strategy. It's a five-year program that is hinged on our own vision 2020 on the Millennium Development Goals and other uh, policy measures that we have in place. After developing this economic development and poverty reduction strategy, uh, that's when we approached the DFID who have been working with us to see how we can work with the World Bank, the African Development Bank, and really identify the key areas that can contribute most to growth and also the key constraints that are preventing, that would hinder progress in economic growth. One key priority we have highlighted 
in our own EDPRS in the medium term, and that's in addition to investments and other key uh, constraints on growth and increase private sector to innovate is reducing business cost by investing in transport, energy, and communication whose costs are the highest in the region. For example, transport costs as a share of import prices are almost three times those in Tanzania and Kenya. Uh, similarly, the, cost, the unit cost of electricity generation in Rwanda is almost two and a half times those in, the, in our own neighboring countries. To address these issues, we have moved and taken very serious action, for example, for transport, to see how we can link ourselves, Rwanda and Tanzania, by establishing the Isaka Chigari railway line. The process is now quite advanced with the assistance from the Africa Development Bank and the World Bank taking the lead. We have also uh, established, we have completed a feasibility study for a new regional airport that would be helping us also to be linked with the region. For the energy sector, we have, rather than focusing on various areas like hydropower, solar energy, and so forth, we have opted to go for methane gas, and there are now two projects underway that are going to generate methane gas from Lake Chivu to the tune of 55 billion cubic meters, which is equivalent to about 700 megawatts that can help not only Rwanda but also the region. For the communication, for the first time we are laying the fiber optic all over the country from the urban to the rural areas and our target for completion is 2010. And if it happens, it will be the first country in Sub-Saharan Africa that has complete fiber optic uh, backbone that is linked in all the districts uh, in the country that can be accessed for, by schools, health centers, private sector, and all other businesses. However, uh, these policy actions will significantly reduce, of course, the cost of doing business and contribute to economic growth. Uh, they can be complemented by donor actions in terms of flexible aid, and of course, the aid for trade, like the recent initiative by the UK government to support the East African community. However, it is important to note that there is no blueprint, of course, to identifying the sources of growth and the constraints to growth in all developing countries. The characteristics and the starting point of each country is different. Some countries are post-conflict, others are endowed with natural resources, others are near the sea, and some have relatively good infrastructure, while others are well integrated in the regional economic blocks. So the solution may be different for each country. Finally, the question remains, uh, who, how, to, uh, how do you identify the sources of growth and the constraints to growth? Of course, this is the work of specialized institutions such as the International Growth Center that will carry out research in collaboration with various countries and various stakeholders, as already mentioned, for ownership purposes, and be able to compare results and advise developing countries and donors alike for, different, for efficient allocation of public investment resources to achieve the necessary growth, taking into account the peculiarities of each country. But this should be a long-time engagement in order, to have a long in order to have a lasting impact. For example, in the case of Rwanda, energy in the case of Rwanda, energy constraint, where I said that we are investing heavily in methane gas, which has all the advantages compared to other alternatives. 
Such studies would look at all the constraints from production, expanding distribution, effective regulation, optimal pricing and collection for maximum contribution to growth. Uh, this research is crucial for policymakers in our own countries to take the right decisions. Similarly, on skills for private sector, the study would look beyond broad skill base and consider skills and knowledge levels, for example, in agriculture, business skills and entrepreneurship, and the technical and vocational skills that will be needed by the private sector who are the engine for economic development. In conclusion, I believe this debate on economic growth is timely, as some of the developing countries, mine included, are now engaged in the second generation of the poverty reduction strategy. In our case, the economic development and poverty reduction strategy, with a focus on economic growth for poverty, for poverty reduction. Therefore, on behalf of my country, I applaud the establishment of the International Growth Center and have no doubt that it will contribute significantly to reducing poverty in developing countries through sustained economic growth. I thank you. Ambassador, thank you very much. Now, I, I have some um, bad news and some good news. Um, the bad news is that we, we are going to have, first, and I think there'll only be a time for one question from me to the Secretary of State. Um, the good news is that uh, there will be um, drinks uh, afterwards um, outside, and you're all welcome to stay. And Robin, Gobind, and the Professor will <laughs> answer all the questions you may have uh, over a glass of wine. Um, but just to close, if I could just ask you, Secretary of State, one question, which is, um, we've seen in the way Robin and Gobind and others have described it, that the principal focus of this uh, centre and the output of the centre will be practical advice to countries and whoever and elsewhere. Uh, but what would you like, uh, what would be your ambition for the public output of this? Because clearly there will be in-country advice uh, but I guess the department would also like that to be broader and for, for there to be some public output from what we learn, which should be quite extensive. How did you think about that dimension of it? I suppose my ambition would be that the kind of attributes of the centre that we've heard about this evening in turn infect and affect uh, broader academic debate on these issues. I think it's hard to overstate the significance of what Paul said in terms of recognising the extent to which the bottom billion have not only been economically forgotten but academically forgotten. And in that sense, I think if we help stimulate thought leadership on these distinctive issues, that in and of itself would be a service. And in terms of standard mechanisms of propagation and distribution of academic papers and, and learnings from the kind of detailed practical work that will be done in individual countries, there are real opportunities there. Um, secondly, I think if I was I was challenged by what people said to think what would be the words that I would want the centre to be thought of in, in five or six years, and I think one would be practical in the sense that I think it is important to recognise the what if I was Barack Obama, which I'm certainly not, I might call the fierce urgency of now, the need to have quick policy responses to some of the most pressing challenges that we we face. So I think practical, real-time um, advice uh, reflecting the best academic learning, I think, would be my aspiration. And I think in that sense, of course, 
there will be public outputs which I hope will strengthen the reputation of the institutions involved and the quality of the work that is produced. But I think also there's an opportunity to have broader influence on, on scholarship and affect the way that people think about the distinctive economic in this space. Thank you very much. Well, that's an interesting injunction for you, which I'm sure uh, the centre will follow. Uh, so thanks very much to all the speakers uh, this evening, which I hope uh, their contributions have given you a clear enough idea of what we're trying to achieve. Um, I'd like to ask if the people sort of sitting on this aisle could just allow me to get the Secretary of State out so that you can get back to the House of Commons in time. That would be very helpful. In the meantime, you are all uh, welcome to stay for a drink. Thank you.